0: beautiful people and welcome back to Living Color Abroad. I'm your host Angie Rodriguez and in this episode you'll be listening to Tanisha who is living here in Costa Rica. Now Tanisha is a psychologist, Afrofeminist activist and researcher on organizational diversity and inclusion strategies. She's also a member of the board of directors Afro-Costa Rican Women's Center, which is an NGO dedicated to promoting the human rights of afro descendant people in Latin America and the Caribbean. So with that being said, (laughs) Tanisha is going today is going to discuss Costa Rican history as it pertains to Afro-Costa Ricans, also known as Afro-Ticos. Now she's going to discuss what were some of the challenges and barriers that Afro-Costa Ricans faced generations ago. And some of the barriers that they currently face. Also, why it's difficult for Costa Rica as a nation to address some of the issues present as it pertains to Afro-Costa Ricans. What it's like for her to be the daughter of, get this, the current vice president of Costa Rica, which is pretty awesome. She discusses how her mother influenced her. And finally, what progress she hopes to see in the near future. Hope you enjoy. This is In Living Color Abroad. All right, Tanisha, welcome to In Living Color Abroad. How you doing?
1: I'm doing good, Angel. How are you today?
0: I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for asking. Is it raining where you are right now?
1: It's like raining very lightly Uh, it might as well like stop in the next few minutes but yeah it's been trying to rain today it's it's sort of transitioning from the dry season to the rainy season yes it is unfortunately
0: it's summer right now in costa rica and that rainy season hits every day when it comes but (laughs) all right let's get right to it tanisha please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself
1: um. So, I'm um, uh, an African descent woman from Costa Rica. I'm 37 years old. I'm a mother of a seven-year-old boy. Um, and I do some, some um, activism work here around anti-racism um, and Black women's rights. Um, I do a lot of that work with my best friend, Victoria. She's a trans woman. So we do a lot of work around intersectionality. Uh, we do political sort of incidents work. We also do or have some sort of trainings or workshops that we provide to the general public around topics related to um, Black people's rights and trans people's rights and the intersections of race and gender. Um, and, um, ultimately, as I said, a mother, um, and that takes up, I would say a a big chunk of my personal life as well. And it's definitely one of my main, um, sort of reasons, uh, for, for me doing a lot of of what I do is making sure that I leave my son an easier and better world, um, that, than what I had to experience and, and that our ancestors had to experience
0: as well. All right, so let's start from the beginning. So obviously, this is going to be centered around Afro-Costa Ricans, Afro-Ticos, and being Afro-Latina. So, first and foremost, do you consider yourself to be Afro-Latina?
1: I consider myself to be Afro-Latina, yes. Um... I, I would say that that's sort of like sort of a newer terminology. Um, I actually, I actually like, you know, I started listening, you know, a lot more about, you know, Afro Latinidad over the course of the last few years. Um, I consider myself as an Afro descendant, um, which is a term that was created by the Black rights or the Black movement in Latin America in preparation towards the Durban Conference, the UN Durban Conference Against Racism in South Africa in 2001. So uh, Afro-descendant has definitely been a big part of sort of my lingo over the last few years. As My mother was part of that group that was in Santiago de Chile when the term was actually created. Um, but I, 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 basically when I was growing up, um, I used to call myself black, right? And I think mm. that that's definitely still a go-to identity for me. So I would say I'm a black Costa Rican woman. Um, or an Afro-descendant Costa Rican woman.
0: Okay, okay, and so let's get let's get right into that because I think those, important, those distinctions I think are are important to kind of go into. So why in particular do you prefer Afro-descendant woman, black woman, compared to Afro-Latina?
1: Um, well, I do think that Latinidad is, is been uh, an identity that has uh, definitely been cemented on white supremacy um, in, in a lot of senses, right? So um, a lot of people think that because this is Latin America, that white supremacy or racism does not exist here as it does in the United States. That's definitely not the case. This sort of Latina identity prioritizes um, the white and mestizo components above definitely the Black and Indigenous components. And it's sort of been a way to erase, um, you know, the, the real lived experiences of, of Black people and people of African descent in Latin America. It's also been, like, co-opted a little bit. I've seen people that are not, um, you know, that you can easily identify as being Black um, uh, sort of adopt that that identity. So um, I feel like, you know, it's, that's sort of like a, a big... A big box where a lot of things can fit that not necessarily represent me, and that's why mm. I don't really like try to refer my identity back to Latinidad as a concept
0: overall. Interesting. Okay, that's 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 good to know. But wait, do you go by Afrothica or no? Would that be something that also? Well, Afrothica
1: I- is fine. Um, Afrothica is fine. And then again, if we can like get really <laughs> like you know... Deep into it, I'm like, I don't really know like that the Costa Rican identity defies me that well. Mm. Like I'm Afro-Caribbean as well. Mm. And I would definitely say I'm Afro-Caribbean, but I think the Costa Rican, just the nationality, just gives you some specificity as to right. what the story could be, where the heritage comes from. So right, I like right. I, I say like Afro-Costa Rican is, is definitely something I identified before Afro-Latina, but even the Costa Rican identity, right? There's a complex relationship with black people and you know just the nation states and um you know sort of Um, uh, making sure that we are uh, so redefining ourselves from a national um, identity perspective right which many of the times the national identities have been constructed either appropriating all cultures and erasing sort of again our lived experiences or basically uh, erasing us as a whole so even the national identities are hard but I I definitely you know would want to make sure that people understand that i'm from costa rica and that definitely shapes my lived experience as a black woman in this country
0: right right, right. i mean i appreciate you giving that context because i think even we were we would have done five minutes it's <laughs> <And this laughs> really really complex because and
1: the first question oh my god I'm right so sorry. <laughs> no
0: no no you're good this is i i i want to get right into it but it's interesting because it speaks to the complexity of latin american history right and and these different identities that again, like some like you said, some people might co-opt, even myself as a Latino, right? I I, I consider myself to be Latino, but I would be I would never say that I'm afro Latino, right? Because there's certain aspects of me that someone doesn't view me as being black. So if I was to like use that term as Afro Latino, I feel I'd be co-opting the experience that I don't have, which is what it's like to be a black person in the United States or Latin America. You know what I mean? So I definitely understand uh, where you come from as far as that is concerned. So, all right. So let's go back to the beginning. At what point in your lived experience, like you said, growing up, did you not just identify as I am a black woman, I am Afro-descendants. What was it that you said, this is going to be a part of my identity because this is like obviously the forefront based on my experiences with other people that might not look like me?
1: Well, and and I always actually, it's even in my bio, I always refer back to my family because uh, as a mostly black family on my mother's side, Just the discourse around racism and black pride, et cetera, was very prevalent when I was growing up. I think my grandparents understood that, you know, when my uncles and my mother would go out, you know, into the world, into school, you know, into just having those relationships with other people outside of their house, um, that this would come back to them as, you know, something negative. Right. So they would be easily identified as black and that that would be used sort of like a weapon against them. So they did their best to sort of give us an armor against that. And they built up our identity as black people, as something to be proud of, as something that was to be considered beautiful. So we definitely say a lot of my activism today is definitely, you know, due to the way that I was brought up. And I always remember um, my my in my grandparents house, my uncles and and aunts and, and my grandparents and mother waking me up to see Nelson Mandela get out of jail in the early 90s. And I was just a little girl. I was maybe six or seven years old at the most. But that was an important part of, you know, our family um, sort of story, right? So um, it definitely sort of helped me grow up with this sort of uh, very um, positive view on my Blackness. And that definitely helped me sort of address and adapt to the experiences that I actually um, had when I went to school and just, again, other places outside of our family house, because it definitely was an experience where blackness in Costa Rica is still very stereotypical in, in the way that it's addressed. And you know there's also a lot of violent racism here, you know, and people saying that, you know, you're ugly because you're black. There was a lot of violence around our hair when I was growing up. And I think that that's actually also changed over the last few years. Um, but that definitely helped me Again, not find out that I was black, um, you know, due to an experience with racism. But it was always something that was um, part of my identity and that I was brought up to be sort of happy, joyful and proud about.
0: Mm -hmm. I hear this a lot from a lot of Costa Ricans that they don't feel that they're racist or that Costa Rican is is inherently racist because of whatever the case may be. Like, no, we're not racist against anyone. We're accepting of anyone. But in my opinion living here and knowing that the predominantly black population lives in one side of the country I feel like it's easy to say you're not racist when you don't interact with people that don't look like you Um, Mm -hmm. what what, what would you say to that?
1: Well, uh, and that's definitely not the case, but I do think, like, definitely, you know, the particular circumstances of Costa Rica as compared to maybe the United States, um, there's, there hasn't been, of course, that possibility, and even in terms of resources, right? You think about the sort of historically black colleges and universities in the U.S., Costa Rica we don't even have. Not, not, not a university, but we don't even have in the in the public university system here um, uh, a specific school for Black and African studies. And the one that exists in the University of Costa Rica is led by a blanco mistress, a woman, right? She's a very smart woman, very good historian, but we don't even have sort of that possibility. And I think that that definitely, you know, we haven't maybe developed as much um, maybe critical and political discourse, and and you know, sort of that that academic cre- uh, creation of knowledge. Or around blackness and our own specific black experiences having lived here in Costa Rica. Um, so we still find, and I still get invited to talks asking this question where, um, is there racism in Costa Rica, right? And I've sort of made up my mind that I would stop accepting those because I don't. I think we're way past that question. Mm. But there's definitely this sort of, you know, thing around Costa Rican identity as a very peaceful country, as a country, you know, where everything is very sort of hot, ha- happy and Pura vida. Tupaya, <laughs> where people feel exactly like, you know, that no, oh, and then that means we don't have any racism. But it's you know you just have to talk to anyone outside of the main sort of racial ethnic group here, which are the white mestizos. You have to talk to any indigenous person, any black person, any uh, Asian descent person, and they'll definitely tell you about their experiences with racism and basically all aspects and parts of Costa Rican society, right? So I think it's just, you know, definitely different experiences. And even if you're sort of an an American migrant coming to Costa Rica, your experience is about to be very different than that of a native Costa Rican and especially a native Black Costa Rican. So there are a lot of things that you may not be able to see firsthand, but are definitely there. And, you know, they definitely speak to a culture where um, if we don't have a violence that's as evident as the one in the U.S., we definitely have tons of sort of that more covert, um, symbolic, um, kind of, you know, uh, very ongoing um, kind of violence that that exists uh, over people of color and black people in particular.
0: Right. And I think that's the biggest piece right there. That I feel that a lot of Costa Rica and other Latin American countries, they use the United States as a comparison. Like, oh, but we're not them. So therefore, it's OK here. And because you said racism is a spectrum, it's not just violence, right? It could be symbolic violence. So you said covert racism, right? Um, Whether it's in the professional setting or whatever the case may be. Uh, So I definitely feel like uh, the countries Latin America try to use this kind of comparison to the U.S. as like a cop-out to, like you said, not address their own, you know, racism and their own history. Now, let's go into that Costa Rican history. I actually saw recently like a 20-minute documentary made by uh, University of Costa Rica UCR about the history of Afro-Ticos and I did not know a lot about it. So can you trace your own uh, generational like history?
1: Well, and I think that that's a big deal with people of African descent and black people everywhere, right? Like this is a lot of a lot of the work behind you know, uh, structural racism and specifically structural anti-Blackness and sort of, you know, this this experience with, with being enslaved and slavery was a lot around erasing your memory and erasing your history and cutting those ties, right? So there's a lot of appetite for Black people to understand where do we come from. Um, and I think I saw recently an article talking about how many, you know, how, how a big percentage of the customers of these companies that trace back your lineage by collecting DNA samples or people that were, you know, uh, black or of African descent trying to basically understand sort of where they may have, you know, where their ancestors may have come from. Um, And and in Costa Rica, we definitely have two big sort of main um, eras of African presence in the country uh, or people of African descent presence in the country. The first one was, of course, during colonies. So the first colonizers that came to Costa Rica came with people of African descent. And there was sort of like a very early, you know, uh, uh, population of people of African descent that started being born in Costa Rica. Some of them were enslaved. Some of them were free people and had sort of a prevalent role in our society. But that first sort of colonial era of people of African descent coming with the colonizers and definitely the slave trade being present here. So although Costa Rica did, was was not uh, one of the, you know, important ports where people were uh, um, uh, were being uh, enslaved or arrived while being enslaved, we definitely had, you know, Panama, which was a big, uh, a big piece of the um, African slave trade to, to the Americas, and then some people also coming from the northern part of the con- continent, like Mexico, right? So there was definitely, you know, enslavement here, and that was definitely in our laws when we were uh, one of uh, the Spaniard colonies. And then there's the second phase, which is the one that people recognize the most, which is the arrival of the Afro-Caribbean workers in the context of building the railroad here, and that started around 1870, 1880, right? So that that's what most People recognize as a black um, sort of heritage in Costa Rica. Those people came here again to build the railroad. Most of them thought that they were going to go back to their own um, countries. Most of them came from Jamaica, but there were also other countries in the Caribbean that you know had an important presence of migrants here. Um, and, and you know they faced a lot of uh, structural violence here and state violence. They were unable to buy land. They were unable to become to be citizens, even their you know their their descendants that were actually born here. And I always like to say when my grandfather was born in 1935, he was born in Costa Rica, but he had to opt for Costa Rica nationality, which was not granted to people that were mm. um, a, of Caribbean descent. And then a generation later, though, his daughter is the first vice president of Costa Rica, right? So it's definitely uh, a, a, a big so you're, change. your mom? Short- <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> okay, so you just dropped the bomb right there. Your mom is the vice president of Costa Rica. <laughs>
1: Yes, she is. Um, but th- that's definitely also part of, you know, what, what has motivated me to do some things over the last few years. Um, it's her example as well. Um, but it's definitely, you know, a situation where you see a, a big change in a few years. But we can definitely, you know, some of these things that we think only happen in the U.S., right, segregation and, you know, some of that state sanctioned violence that was very clear. We had that here as well. Right. And, you know, black people here only were able to vote. Um, after 1948, um, so that's definitely you know a short time if you consider that there are plenty of black people that are still alive today that were born before that time, and you know that had to face again all of that state-sanctioned structural anti-blackness that the country has never addressed, you know, in a, in an honest fashion.
0: That's, that's good to know. That's, that's good to know. Now pulling back this layer, you, you said your mom is the vice president of Costa Rica, which is pretty cool. I never yeah. spoken to anyone whose mom or dad was of, anything <laughs> of a country. So that's kind of awesome. So what would you say? And obviously you growing up, right? Seeing your mom obviously rise to this office. What would you say are the biggest differences in how you experienced being an Afro descendant, right? In, in Costa Rica to now at this moment? What are some big differences you've noticed in the way Costa Rican society has changed in their perception, in the way the the relationship between uh, Afro Uh
1: That was a deep question. I'm not sure like <laughs> how to answer that. Um, but it definitely like it's changed. But I would say so. So the reality is of being the daughter of the vice president here in Costa Rica. Just so that I can like <laughs> like demystify de- that a little bit, right? Uh, it's very different than that. You know, you would be if if you were say the, of course the daughter of the vice president of the US Or for that fact, you know, a a variety of other countries. And I remember when when this happened, when my mom, like, was elected to office in 2018. And I went to the U.S. um, for work, but I had, like, this chat with a friend. And he's like, oh, is it true that your mom got elected, you know, as the first vice president? I'm like, yeah. He's like, so where's your, you know, your escort? And I'm like, what do you mean? I don't have an escort. Like, I have no security at all. Like, I just live a normal life, like... As normal as it possibly could be. And I think that's also, of course, you know, a testament as to, again, Tico culture and, yeah, overall Costa Rica as compared to some other countries in Latin America and definitely the U.S., just the levels of violence here are much, much smaller. Um, That has to do with several different things. Um, Definitely the lack of, you know, us having an army is one of the big factors. And then this country did take some good decisions in you know 1940s when when our constitution um came to be the constitution that is currently um active or. or um, relevant in Costa Rica, the 1948 Constitution gave us um, universal health care, um, you know, a, a good public education system. So that definitely has led to, you know, a level of social peace in Costa Rica over the last few decades. And I would say that's definitely starting to change as the country has become more unequal over the last mm. maybe 20, 30 years. Uh, but it's still, you know, our reality is compared to some other countries. I can imagine us being um, my mother's daughters and, and her being vice president of Nicaragua and we, you know, not having an escort for, by example, mm. right? So, but, but I do live a pretty normal life. Um, the experience of my mother, you know, rising to this office has been somewhat very unique. My mother, as as long as I can remember, she's been an activist. She's been, you know, an activist for the rights of, of, of people of African descent. She was, um, you know, in environmental activist when I was, um, smaller. She's been part of the women's rights movements here in Costa Rica, so she rose to sort of the political stage from like a very activist um, sort of, you know, her role in. Uh, civil society here in Costa Rica. Um, and then, you know, it's it's definitely this this experience as a vice president has made us be much more aware of the differentiated treatment that exists here, sort of the, that double standard um, that exists, of course, with Black women in certain spaces. So it's made me hyper aware. It's also given me a bit of you know, an increased visibility. I don't want to say hyper visibility, but I like, I'm not really a public person. I've actually, you know, never wanted to get into sort of again that, you know, political um, <clears throat> scenario, although my work is political. And I want to say sort of that electoral politics is mm-hmm. what I mean when you say that. Um, so it's it's been a little bit, you know, hard for me because I've always been very vocal and I've always, you know, done things. And now that's, you know, given me visibility. A lot of it is good, good visibility where people, you know, understand the message. And I've been getting called to do a lot of these talks and talk to all kinds of different people. But a lot of it is is negative as well. Right. So I'm I'm actually very sort of familiar with the sort of what it means to be a black woman in Costa Rica and how that can lead to a lot of direct violence. So I've been a target of a lot of direct violence as well. Um, but it, I wouldn't say it's I would say I wouldn't say it's It's not to say that there hasn't been a lot of progress, and and I see a lot of this through my mother. She's, of course, 21 years older than I am, and she does say that there's definitely a change from, you know, when we were growing up and when she was much younger in uh, at least uh, sort of the knowledge or even interest in these kinds of topics, right? I remember in 1996, they hosted the second Afro-Latin American and Afro-Caribbean women's in, um, summit here in Costa Rica. The first one was actually in the Dominican Republic. And, and that's when, when 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 they started talking about, you know, Afro-Latinidad or being Afro-Latin American women. Um, but when that happened in 96, it basically happened without, you know, any kind of notoriety. And now every 25th of July, which is the International Day of uh, Afro-Latin, Afro-Caribbean and Women of the Diaspora, you know, there's a lot of movement on social media and a lot of people talking about it. And that's their work. I've been able to see in my lifetime how that work was very, you know, very sort of ignored and very erased in, in sort of, you know, the, the main social, political, et cetera, discourse here, to it being a well-known, very important um, sort of, you know, celebration right now and something that people talk about, right? Even having these talks around Afro-Latinidad, afro descendientes all of these terms, really you weren't hearing, um, you know, as, as, as you are now, 20, 25 years ago. And that's their work, right? So I get to be in a really sort of privileged position where I'm able to see That sort of upfront, so I do see the progress happening. uh, Although we can't wait for it to, you know, to be much more than what it is, but we definitely seen some progress um, over the last few years.
0: Right, right, right. and and so again, I don't want to harp too much on, uh, you know, your mom being the vice president, but I am curious in terms of. Um, so again, she, she rose to this, rose to this office and you said she's, you've seen the progress that she's done before she was even vice president. Is she the first, uh, black vice president in the history of Costa Rica? She is. Okay. How, what kind of way, because obviously as people of color and as black people, this has to be a way. And, you know, obviously, you, obviously you're aware of Kamala Harris being be the first black vice president in uh, the United States, right? Woman vice president. And there's this way I feel on people when they're the first of anything that you have to now have the door open for the people behind you. So in, in your talks mm-hmm. with her, do you feel like there's like a weight or pressure of like, I got to make sure that people that look like me, I've, I've opened the door, I've set a path?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, there's and that works, I would say, in two ways. It's, it's kind of bittersweet in a sense, um, because as a first, you always have, of course, a lot more... You know, you're basically erupting into a space that wasn't built, wasn't designed for your presence, right? And that has, there's a lot of... Um, sort of hardship that comes with that. Um, And I've seen that way up close with my mom. She was the first vice president, black vice president, black woman vice president, of course, and the first black and woman um, minister of foreign affairs here for her first year in office. Um, And that definitely came with you know, a lot of, as I said, different hardships because those spaces, and specifically foreign policy here, it's very elitist. It's a very elitist space. And when I also say when I'm the daughter of the vice president, always people... the other thing that people assume is that I'm rich, but that's not the case. I'm sorry to say. So, you know, even those components, though, you know, around uh, sort of that class component and what it means. Um, But it definitely, you know, I I, I see again, I've seen up up close sort of the hardships that come by or with being the first one. But then I've also and I, I and I, of course, know this from my mother. They, the historic responsibility is always gonna be there, right? And it, as hard as it is for black people to get to uh you know spaces where the decisions are being made, especially especially you know these political decisions that are impacting basically the uh, the the path that the country is following, um there's a responsibility that that she's always uh, identified with as as you know, this comes with me. Doing something for people of African descent because it is very hard for people of African descent here. So it's right. not accepted that we get here and don't do something for our own peoples. And I think that that's what she's done over the last few years. Costa Rica has definitely had a very prevalent space when it comes to um, the international arena when it co- uh, and 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 uh, the rights of peoples of African descent. It was a motion of uh, from Costa Rica and the Costa Rican government directly with the influence and leadership of my mother to bring forward. The possibility of having the International Day of People of African Descent that was approved um, uh, unanimously by the UN General Assembly, um, the the permanent forum for people of African descent, again another um, sort of uh, motion from Costa Rica that was approved by the UN General Assembly. So all of these things are going to stay around even as she lives uh, leaves office in the next few months. I must say I'm excited for that. <laughs> um, but you know, there's there's definitely again. This, it, it's definitely again something that, you know, she's. Um, she's definitely done in terms of making sure that she is doing something and representing as best as she can the interests of people of African descent. But again, it is also very hard. And also the sort of the demands, right? Even from your own community, your own right, population right. come from being the first. People expect you to be able to solve all kinds of things that you may not be able to solve. Right. So there's definitely you know, nuances behind being the first, right, right,
0: right. Now, I just think that, I mean, I think that's awesome that. and I think actually, now that I think about it, I think she was actually in the documentary that I saw. <laughs> She was talking about Afro-Ticos and the Descendants history. Um, but, but yeah, so anyway, all right, now shifting a little bit. Now, because I don't want to, for those that are listening, I don't want to do a blanket on, like you said, Afro-Latinidad or, or Afro-Descendants all over Latin America, because there is nuance, right? It's not just all the same. Even the history of Costa Rica is very different to the history of the Dominican Republic, for example, which where my family's from, and I'm a little bit familiar with the history of DR. So I want you to take us into the, to the Tico Psyche, because for the Dominican, for the Dominicans, there's this prominence of black people in the sense of you go to the capital Santo Domingo, which is uh, I think millions of people there, more than San Jose, obviously like probably twice the size of the population of San Jose. And the moment you arrive in the art, you see blackness. You know what I mean? When people come to San Jose, or and when they go to the most, you know Guanacaste, they don't necessarily see that, so they feel like oh, Costa Rica is not a quote-unquote black country. But that, that looks different in Dominican Republic. You mentioned Panama, right, and, and different Belize, right, and Cuba, obviously, Havana. So there's th- these places are are prominent black spaces. And obviously in Costa Rica, predominantly these people live on the Caribbean coast, right, Limón, like you said. So take us to the psyche of of, of Ticos as to why, in my opinion, and in speaking to people that are not <laughs> afro they seem to distance themselves, whether consciously or subconsciously, from the mm-hmm. history of Afro-descendants. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, they distance themselves in some parts of it, they just, and other parts it's just plainly erased. But um, just going back to the history, right? So when Costa Rica got um, its independence, we became independent from Spain as Central America. So, you know, we were part of uh, you know, the Central American Federation. Um, and when Costa Rica actually decided to become an independent nation or republic, which was so that happened in 1821. Right. So we basically uh, uh, last year we were celebrating 200th years of, of independence from Spain. But we weren't really an independent nation in 1821. We that happened in the 1840s. And when that happened, there was a very concerted effort by the Costa Rican authorities um, to make sure that the Costa Rican identity as a singular nation from Central America was built on this notion of us being different from the other countries in Central America. And a lot of that difference was cemented on us being different because we were white. And because we were homogeneous. So you know, we didn't have maybe as an important of an indigenous population that existed as it did, of course, in Guatemala and some of the parts of you know northern Central America. Mm -hmm. Um, and that gave us the possibility of having or constructing this, this notion of Costa Rica as being a very white country, that whiteness and you know, sort of racial and ethnic homogeneity also gave us you know, the possibility of being a very peaceful country. So all of these things around us being peaceful, um, and you know, and, and you might have heard this before, but um, a, a few of the very important Costa Rican folklore songs from those early years talk about us being a Central American Spain, right? It's all very Eurocentric, mm-hmm. this construction of nation that happens in these uh, early years of Costa Rican uh, uh, existence as a nation. The country even goes as far as to establish migration Um, Commissions in countries of Europe because we wanted to attract European migrants to Costa Rica. Costa Rica had to go about. Um, a very important effort to grow its population because it wasn't a very sort of densely populated country and it wanted to grow its economy. But we didn't just want to grow, you know, our population of, you know, people from diverse backgrounds. We wanted to grow our population of people from European descent. And as I said, we even went as far as to ban migration of people of Asian descent or people of African descent. So it it definitely is a very important part of our, I would say, construction of national identity here in costa rica um that we are a white country we are the whitest in central america and even you know a very white country if you compare it to other countries in latin america right. and then the black people only exist in the caribbean coast that they came to build the railroad and they basically stayed there however if you look at you know most of the things that costa Ricans consider traditional or typical costa rican culture those come from the Pacific coast of Guanacaste, and Guanacaste was one of the first places that was uh, that had an important um, um, number of a population of African descent. So, if you look at a lot of that folklore. Um, That is heavily African uh, uh, um, descended, right? You look at the marimba, this percussion instrument that's part of a Costa Rican uh, sort of national identity that's an African uh, um, uh, um, instrument. If you look at the way the typical um, Guanacaste dances are, people stumping their feet, those are all very African cultural components. Mm-hmm. But those were basically whitewashed to be, you know, accepted as part of Costa Rican, you know, as part of the Costa Rican sort of national identity uh, uh, um, uh, context. And I think it's it's still, a, you know, a thing where Costa Ricans don't really accept that those parts of our culture are also Black and are also of African descent. And that the only thing we see as, as you know, being African descent um, or having African descent um, influence is the culture of In Limon, right? right? Um, and And it's still, we still have a lot of. Uh, people asking you if you're an Afro-Costa Rican and they see you anywhere but Limón. The first thing people, a lot of people ask you is, are you from Limón, right? This is one right. of the most common microaggressions here, micro-racisms that we experience. And it's this ne- necessity to put the blackness somewhere else, right? You have mm. to be from somewhere else. We have to be able to pinpoint where you are, where you came from because this blackness can't be from us. It can't mm. be ours. Um, and I think that there's a lot, you know, to deconstruct
0: there still. Oh, man. You're just dropping gems, Sanisha. This, this is his, for those, this, this is history lesson, right? This is a, the best history lesson you can get, free of charge, from Sanisha, right <laughs> here. This is just—I uh, mean, I'm just trying to take this all in. Sorry, give me a second. <laughs> there's a lot. There's, there's so much there to unpack, right? There's so much there. Like you said this concentrated effort to construct Costa Rica in this way of being peaceful, like you said, and that's why. On, and when I speak to people that visit Costa Rica. And as me, I'm a quote unquote foreigner expat, right? I'm from New York, Dominican heritage. Um, one thing that I thought, were coming to Costa Rica when I first visited and when I visit other Latin American countries and talking to friends that have been here, the unfortunate thing that they say is that Costa Rica lacks culture. And I felt that strongly when I first visited. I'm like, I'm here. People think of Costa Rica, like you said, a peaceful, beautiful, naturally lush country that you go see nature. You're not here to see culture. But that obviously, in speaking to you today, so there's so much culture of Costa Rica, but is not presented, right? That's the missing, or I mean, you tell me, you know more than I do. That's the missing component of to to make Costa Rica this culturally rich country. Because again, when I go to Limon, I've been to Limon like five times, and Puerto Viejo, I'm like, wait, this is this is Costa Rican culture. This is not just this is black culture, but it's part of the whole country. But it seems to be completely isolated in this region, and when I talk to Ticos, they're like, oh yeah, Limon's like another world. I'm like, why do you talk about Limon like that? Like, <laughs> it's part of your country. <laughs> not, is it a, and then you said the microaggression, why is it considered another world? Is it because people there are black and versus here, people are more white passing? Mm-hmm. So I, mm-hmm. I, I think it's this really, this So I mean, we don't have enough time to unpack all of this, but I think it's so interesting. And what are your thoughts to that point? When people say Costa Rica lacks culture, What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, well, and I I would have to agree. A lot of, you know, well, no country lacks culture. I also think that that's a very elitist thing to say. Uh, And we, you know, we heard this from, you know, some people of some certain backgrounds that, oh, you know, the lower class people, they lack culture. So, and when they said that, they were actually talking about sort of these very, Europeanized, very, you know, whitewashed sense of what culture really is. Those Mm. people like that culture. Uh, But usually most of the culture actually comes from the lower classes, working classes of people. Um, And in that sense, Costa Rica does have a lot of culture, but it sort of struggles to accept it, as you said. Right. So a lot of the really strong cultural components that the country could sort of, um, you know, uh, 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 take as As its own, and you know make make sure that we find pride in that, that we learn that, that we you know even sell that from from a, a, a tourism perspective, they're just generally not accepted as being part of Costa Rica because we are still very embedded in trying to sell this very whitewashed, very you know Europeanized, this Central American Switzerland um, version of Costa Rica. So it's hard for people to accept that. And we definitely see a lot of the structural violence that happens to Limón through state-sanctioned abandonment, right? So Limón definitely has um, uh, lower um indexes and in, in, you know many of the things that 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 that, that are related to the quality of life that people there uh, live, right? So the, the education levels, the access to health care, which, as I said, is one of the founding principles of the Costa Rican society. All of those things people have less access to because they're in Limón. And a lot of that is due to structural racism. So that's the way structural racism presents itself in Costa Rica. Is there systemic racism in Costa Rica? Yes. Mm. You can see it in the census. You can see Black people... Are um, you know have higher levels of poverty, have higher um, unemployment, and even getting those 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 um, numbers was hard for us because um, sort of this again notion of the the general homogeneous Costa Rican identity, we had to struggle with um, the National Census um, Institute here to accept. To even have a question around, you know, asking people to self-identify. When they did, they bulked the mestizo and white category into the same because they did not want to see the reality, which was even though we know that most of the Costa Rican population is mestizo, most of them identify as white. Um, so, you know, but 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 we had we had the first round of numbers in the 2011 census where even even getting those numbers was hard for us. But now that we have some data that proves that there are systemic inequities here, um, we can definitely make the case for the state really needs to do something to address these differences. And Costa Rica has signed a variety, a multiplicity of different international agreements around human rights, around specifically fighting against racism and fighting against racial discrimination, that it has to bring into fruition by creating public policy that ultimately directly addresses these inequalities that have been sustained through systemic racism. Um, and again, a lot of that is experienced in the, in the province of Limong, even though that that province, of course, is not exclusively Black, but uh, it's definitely been constructed as a Black province. And that definitely has resulted in, you know, sort of all those um, lacks of access and all of those... Um, uh, uh, um, neglects that we've seen happen with the province. And, of course, a lot of of, of not accepting Limón as a part of Costa Rica is also due to, you know, that means that you have to accept blackness as a part of Costa Rica mm. as well. Mm. Um, and, and it's a double-edged sword when I think about it, because I, I always used to say this, right? This is Costa Rican culture, so you want to accept this as Costa Rican culture. And, but then again... I don't want people to accept the culture and continue to reject the people, which is what we see many mm, times. Yes, so I don't yeah, want yeah. the people to say, oh, this is now our culture. But while they're still inflicting violence on people of African descent, no, thank you. We'll keep this culture and continue to call this our culture until we are accepted, not only for what we can give to this country, but also for what this country owes us in terms of all that we have done so far to make this nation what it ultimately is today.
0: Tanisha, I think you need to reconsider running for office.
1: (laughs) (laughs) People keep saying that, though. People are like, oh, aren't you going to follow in your mother's footsteps? You have what it takes. I'm like, I'm really not interested. You wouldn't be surprised. That sounds like a
0: good speech to hear, what I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. No, I mean, again, but this is why, Tanisha, I'm really grateful for you being on because... As Me as a foreigner, and being that I'm American, right? I'm Latino, but I'm still American, right? I have, I have that part of me, that American culture, and Dominican culture. And being here, I recognize, I, I hate to say it, but kind of instantaneously, the difference between the white-passing Latinos and Ticos versus the Afro-Ticos and how the white-passing Latinos view the Afro-Ticos and the way they spoke about them. And like you said, the microaggressions and this, the very common, like, oh, I can't believe you just said that calling negrito or you know and things like okay. that and calling anyone that's mestizo anyone that looks hindu is a negrito you know like because mm-hmm. okay, he's not white he has to be that means that he's black and and obviously being a negative connotation not really being a, a positive one right and but mm-hmm. i can't i can't speak about that because i'm not from here but i know what that looks like being that again as a latino and i, and I spoke about this actually to some staff that there's colorism colorism exists Right and like I'm not, I'm treated differently because I could walk around these streets in San Jose and no one thinks that I'm not from here, mm-hmm. right? But if 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 I was to look different, if I was to look a little bit darker, I might be treated a little bit differently, right? Or or, or looked upon at, at, as being different, and especially because I come oh, from true. the states. So I mm-hmm. think it's important for people like you, obviously that from here, to to keep speaking about this because I do feel that it's uncomfortable, right? These 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 conversations. Are uncomfortable in any in any context of any country in the world where you're like, hey, you need to address your flaws, right? The fact that you reject X, Y, and Z, and you 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 know you you have this systemic racism, and it's hard. And obviously, the United States is hard, and I can imagine here Costa Rica where it's like, oh, but we're so peaceful, we're so pura vida. So like, but that doesn't mean that you still can't be racist or or you can't have structures that that you said that neglect people that look like you, right? So it, it's just so. Is so much there, and I think it's these these huge barriers that it, it doesn't have to be overt; it could be very covert as well. But now I want to tie it to Tanisha, an, an important aspect I feel, because a lot of people that listen to my podcast they're black expats, right? Black and brown expats. And one thing I don't know if you realize this is actually an article in the Guardian out of the UK where black people, like mostly from the US, have migrated to move to Costa Rica because they feel accepted here compared to the united states Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. you being afro-thika and you knowing all the things that you know how are you uh, just talk about that what what is the nuance of that (laughs) of being a black american here and and most of them feeling widely accepted here for them being who they are compared to Mm -hmm. an afro thico here in costa rica
1: well, I, I, you know, I would say that's definitely a case of well, part of it is definitely that case, a case of the grass is always greener on the other side, and of course, if you're facing the levels of, pol, uh, pol, um, <coughs> I'm sorry, police violence <coughs> that Black people face in the United States, that constant threat for your life in every police encounter, you know, um, you know that that very real possibility of uh, facing life threatening violence. Mm-hmm. um the, if you come to a country like costa rica you might definitely feel like this is paradise because it doesn't <laughs> happen here police aren't killing police aren't killing anybody so they're they aren't killing the black people either right right um but but like so I would definitely uh, say that if you compare it to, again, the very real life-threatening violence that Black people face in the United States, if you come to Costa Rica, you're bound to feel a difference in that sense. But there are also other, and this is where intersectionality comes in. I love where everyone everyone wants to talk about intersectionality. It's a great word. It talks it's great about words. their marginalized <laughs> identities, right? So we want to say, oh, I'm Black, and I'm a woman, and I'm you know a single mother. But no one wants to talk about their identities where they hold power privilege Mm. and there's definitely power privilege (laughs) in well yeah that's that's the the reality right so and there's definitely a power privilege that comes with that american passport that Mm. comes with that you know you having a dollar income versus our very devaluated colones here in costa rica right and those um sort of complex global relationships that exist. Within the, you know, between the U.S. and other countries, that imperialism, that you know, those those uh, colonialism uh, uh, um, that 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 still exists. So, and and I think that that definitely there is a privilege that Black people from the global North experience uh, when they come to to the to the global South. So that that definitely is also a part of it, right? Um, but I would say that their experience as a black person here is still not gonna be the one, you know, the same one as as a white American would have here. Mm, they will man. still definitely experience the racism that black people, um that, that black people experience here as well. And that's also experienced in you know in police encounters and the way the police will treat you and the way that you will be treated when you go out to you know the supermarket and where you or where you're out in the shop, you'll see the people following you around as it would happen in the United States, right? So all of those things around black identity, you know being something that's global in that you know anti-blackness is truly something that's experienced around the world, and you're bound to find some of that here as well.
0: Right, right, right. I mean, you, you said it perfectly, right? Like, the privilege that we hold. And that's one thing, thankfully, I would like to say that most of my guests are very self-aware, whether, you know, they're black or brown, is, like you said, that blue passport. I had a guest tell me, Tanisha, who was living in Abu Dhabi, shout out to Brian, black, black male. He says, I never felt more American before in my life. He's like, I'm American here before I'm black. And he's talking about this, this hierarchy, right, of like, of social construct, right? And it's and it's so interesting and, and and obviously here, like I said, for myself, I'm not Tino. I might be marginalized in certain aspects in in the United States, but here because I am American still, right? I speak uh, American English. There's a certain level of privilege that I have because of that, and because uh, uh, because I could just you write me- meander in in the San Jose and not be looked at or, or looked twice at, right? And because like of said, the dollar that 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 we make. So it's just so interesting and. Yeah, there's just so much. And unfortunately, we're running out of time. But <laughs> There's
1: really, a lot of layers to these things. A, there's, so many,
0: there's so many that we need a part two. I clear we need a part two. <laughs> All right. So, okay. The final segment of the podcast. Usually, I, I do a lightning round. And it's usually like fun questions. I don't really know. I think of these on the spot. I'm very, I'm very spontaneous. Oh I don't really know what to ask now. But let's go. Let's go for it. You ready? So, basically, first answer that comes to your mind. Okay? Okay. All right. Favorite place in Costa Rica.
1: <laughs> Peninsula de Osa. Okay. Osa Peninsula. Why? Península. That's in
0: the south, right?
1: Yes, that's the song. And, oh, and, and I'm I'm sorry, like, maybe make sure that the Costa Ricans don't hear this. <laughs> because, of course, my people are going to be like, didn't she just say Osa Feliz? <laughs> like she did not say Puerto Viejo or Manzanillo. <laughs> what is up with her? Those were definitely my favorite spots before going to Osa. Osa is just amazing. I got to see whales, you know, out in the ocean. It was just an overall, like, amazing experience to me. So I have to say that's my number one right now.
0: All right. Um. Yes or no question. Will you will you run for office in the future? <laughs> no. <laughs> final answer. <laughs> final, fi- final answer. Final answer. Um. Best advice that your mom has given you. Ooh. Mm. Yeah, best
1: like advice, my mom. She. My mom has given me so much advice. Like it's hard for me too. <laughs> uh, but I would say best advice my mom has given you. Um. Oh, oh! This is this is this is a great. But she took this from from Chinese philosophy, anyways. But this is this there's this thing that she says all the time, and it's when you're walking. It she says it in Spanish, so I'm just gonna try to translate it as best as I can. When you're walking with the masses, stop and think.
0: That's 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 a good one. That's a that's a really good one.
1: Yeah, it's a very, it's a very good one. And we go by that so.
0: Um, what are you? Uh, this is gonna be a hard uh, one-word answer, or tr- but what are you trying to? What's like the number one thing you're trying to teach your seven-year-old son?
1: To, to be proud of who he is, but be gentle with others.
0: Mm. Mm. That's powerful, right there. Um, okay, last lightning round question. Hmm, I gotta I gotta make this a good one. What <laughs> what will you say are the three anchors for you that make up Tanisha Campbell?
1: Okay. so and this is something that's somewhat more recent. I've really started to sort of deep like take a deep dive into my spirituality and sort of like develop that piece of me. And a lot of that has come through strengthening my relationship communication with my ancestors. I would say my ancestors are definitely one of those big things that now keep me grounded and like I go to, um, you know, when I need um um sort of you know energy or or just calm or whatever i may need i now you know try to sort of deep into that that resource that spiritual resource so that's definitely one my family almost as i said i'm very family oriented some people i don't really believe in astrology but people keep saying like oh that's because you're a cancer so I'm a cancer i'm a cancer, so cancer so too and what it means. <laughs> oh you are that's crazy At least so that's what I'm told. Like, what, what's what what's your birthday what's your birthday uh, July
0: 11th. Okay, I'm July 22nd, so it's I. I'm, oh, so I'm, you're
1: right there. Yeah, so I'm, a, I'm a customer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've heard that before, but it, I've heard that 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 may have to do. But I'm overall very family oriented. So my family, I always again try to give my like try to give and do space. Uh, whenever I talk about these things or anything, you know, to talk about my family as well and how they've influenced me to be the person that I am today. So it's definitely another one. And then. um the third one the third pillar of who i am um this, this is hard oh my god only this hard so question hard. on this podcast <laughs> exactly i'm like what what i'm trying to make something up because like i don't really know those are like i only have two pillars is that bad like to, does it need to be three like Strong, two, better I, I two i don't know i don't know if
0: that's symmetrical i don't know but that's fine it's fine <laughs>
1: Okay, good. Thank you. Thank you. That was
0: getting too hard for me. <laughs> All right. Final, final question. Not not lightning rounds. You have about the last thing I'm, I'm going to ask you on the podcast. Um, what would you like to see? Now, again, you said your mom is finishing office in the next couple of months. There'll be a new, new administration, right? It might be, obviously, good or a bad thing, depending on who you ask, <laughs> who wins. Exactly. Um, what would you like, in relation to, again, afro-ticos, Afrodescendientes, right, afro-descendants, and mm-hmm. how people view blackness in Latin America, in particular Costa Rica, what would you, Tanisha, mm-hmm. like to see in the near future, let's say two, two to four years, right, which is a presidential term, <laughs> four years, what would you like to see in the next four years in Costa Rica to to better this relationship with their own culture, right, with, with afro-tico culture?
1: So actually just let it process uh, with other African descent um, organizations here to create sort of these list of petitions for the next incoming government and a lot of that had to do with basically not losing we we're asking for much this just basically not losing some of the progress that we've had here over the last couple of administrations there's definitely you know been some progress there really isn't anyone within um, sort of the the um, uh, institutionality of the state here that is devoted to safeguarding defending and just overall positioning the agenda and, and, and needs of the population of African descent and the last two governments did create a position um for that although you know it was a non-paid position but that definitely we don't want to lose some of those spaces that we've won so a lot of it is going to have to do with you know making sure that we don't lose those again those spaces that we've sort of earned over the last couple of um, governments. we re- definitely want to see more affirmative action so Costa Rica sign an affirmative action law for people of African descent the government is obligated to prioritize people of African descent um, in uh, hiring within um, in the public sector, or the government, um, until we reach 7%. So according to the last census, the uh, um, percentage of population here that self-identified as African descent was about 7.86%. Mm-hmm. So we're asking for that 7%. So we want to make sure that that happens. But I would also like to see more affirmative actions. So Costa Rica has an affirmative action for women's uh, law, where, you know, we are that we are obligated to have at least 40% of women in eligible positions to Congress and 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 you know other positions of of um of public public election officials. And I would definitely want to see that extended to people of African descent. We've definitely been underrepresented in that sort of you know political decision making space. I would love to see more people of African descent in media here in Costa Rica. All media here is very white mestizo. So we had a very famous news anchor that was in one of the sort of main uh, um uh Uh, channels here but that stopped a few years ago and now if you look at the news it's basically all white people uh, and and same in all of the productions you know in in Costa Rican television so I definitely like to see diversification and more black faces when I turn on the tv I I understand that representation is not an end goal in itself but it definitely is something that's important especially for the younger kids to be able to basically, you know, open up their imaginations as to what they can be. So we want to see black faces everywhere. That's definitely something that I would love to see more of here in Costa Rica. Um, and I would definitely want, you know, people to um, accept their responsibility in reproducing the harms of racism. I think you know it's very important people uh, understand that we've all been brought up in a racist society. We've all been educated to reproduce racist stereotyping and harm. Um, and 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 you know it's it's not helpful when people just say oh I'm not a racist right like this is something that's above them or or uh, beyond them um, I would love to see more people in Costa Rica accepting responsibility for those historic and and, and systemic violences that are inflicted um, towards people of African descent here so that we can start seeing you know and changing some of those attitudes that are still um, again, harmful or hurtful, and that make up um, a, a harder lived experiences for people of African descent here than you know the experiences of the general um, Costa Rican population. So, I definitely want to see people again accepting that responsibility, um, and that's the only way that we can sort of work towards that change that we need to see.
0: Amazing. I have one final question. I lied. Uh, I just thought of it as you as you were speaking. I'm like, wait, I, I need to get this in. Now, you mentioned Costa Rica, right? This is, we're talking micro one country. For those that are listening, that I have people listening from all over the world in this podcast, people that are not just black and brown, but white. Why does this matter? Right. I, 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 and I, and I asked this question because in speaking to a colleague, she said, why are we making this such a big deal when we're talking about afro Like history? Why are we making this a big deal? So why does this matter? This this idea about celebrating and promoting, like you said, affirmative action, blackness. Af- why does this matter in the macro sense? You said how why okay. in the micro, why in the macro sense? If you could say this in a few sentences, because I know it's gonna be hard. That's hard to do, <laughs> because Elijah asked a lot there. But why does this matter at the end of the day?
1: why is this important well it's important for the country so even when we talk about women's participation right so we're, why do we want to have women and 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 i told you like my daytime uh work is around um sort of talking no creating I'm, I'm, i don't talk myself but i create conferences where people talk about how to be strategic around the way that they manage people in companies and organizations and why do companies want to do that why do companies want to talk about diversity and inclusion right it's not because they like they want to be nice it's not like <laughs> they really have stakes in the fight against racism, it's because this ultimately leads to innovation, leads to engagement, leads to more profit, um, and you know, leads to more efficiency. So we definitely want to make sure that we are um, uh, uh, taking all the perspectives, all those skill sets, and all that value that comes from making sure that Black people are included and represented in all facets of social life. Um, and, and, and everyone wins when that happens, right? Black people are a great source of creativity, or're a great source of, you know, specialized knowledge, even some of this discourse that I'm sharing with you. Has been widely adopted, say, by feminism. Right, feminism now talks about intersectionality as it being a big deal. That came from a black woman, so the level of analysis that black people bring to the table is unparalleled because we have some of those experiences that you know we're able to speak about and from. Um, so I'd say everyone wins when you know there is uh, a more equitable, uh, a more inclusive society. And I, I, I now I don't like to talk about inclusion as much because most of the times when you think about inclusion is really including us in. Systems that are harmful or that were created, uh, you know, to work against us. So I think a lot of the systems really need to be rethought, redesigned, and abolished. Uh, but we do, you know, when we think about inclusiveness and just being able that being able to know that everyone has to seat at the table. It definitely is something that's you know going to be for the greater good of society as a whole and of you know countries as a whole and of the region of Latin America um, as a whole. But it's also important because we are people. We are real people, and our experience. Experiences should matter as much as you know as as the next and I think a lot of it in the last few days where we've seen uh, a lot of the suffering that's happening in a war zone um, with with the invasion of Russia in Ukraine we've also um, seen how some of those sufferings and experiences of some people are more important than you know others and we've seen how this conflict has a lot of prevalence because of Sort of the identities of the people involved, right? And we want to make sure that we are taking care of the lives of all people that exist. And when we say Black Lives Matter, it's not about, you know, deaths mattering. We don't really only want to care when people are dying. We need to care about what people are saying when they're alive, what their experiences are, what their needs are, what their wants are. And what their desires are if we really want to make sure that we are living in a society and in a world where, you know, everyone's life is is is, is of value and matters. So I think this is not, um, you know, only something that's going to be important and beneficial for people of African descent, but that's, you know, beneficial for overall society because for the foreseeable future, we're in this together.
0: hope you enjoyed that episode with tanisha i most definitely definitely did um she is a beacon of knowledge and i think that was very apparent and all the wealth of information that she had at her disposal and 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 graciously shared with me free of charge (laughs) because she definitely charges for these types these types of talks so i definitely appreciate her doing that (laughs) for for uh for me and for all of you listening and yeah, I mean, for those that have listened to my podcast before, and many of you listening now, I know have listened to many episodes. And if you're here for the first time, hello, welcome. Um, but this is uh, this is important to me, not just in the context of Costa Rica, but just in the context of the things I care about, which are diversity, equity, and inclusion, which she has, which she mentioned. Um, and these conversations are important and is important for, like she mentioned at the end, for all of us to have, not just some of us, not just those that feel marginalized or those that have privilege, for for all, every person to have. And that was important for me to hear, honestly, because at times myself, I feel uncomfortable to say certain things or to talk about certain things because of the perspective that I might bring and because of my background, right? As many of you know, I'm born and raised in the United States, but I also have Dominican heritage. My parents immigrated from the Dominican Republic to the U.S. So I have what someone called. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to use this term. But you know a hybrid. Kind of this hybrid culture of knowing what it's like to be American. And also knowing what Dominican culture is like. I, I understand some of the cultural aspects of Costa Rica to some degree. But some of it rubs me the wrong way to be frank. Uh, as I guess having the perspective to have from you know growing up in New York City. And the mindset that I just have when it comes to certain things and issues that uh, Tanisha mentioned. And so I have a hard time like walking this fine line, I feel. And I'm sure other foreigners, expats, whatever you want to call us could relate to this of. Should I speak up about this? Am I coming at this from an elitist or Western perspective? And I'm not appreciating the nuance or the perspective of those that live here and are from here. And I think that's important as well. Even though I agree with Andrew's point that we all should speak up when we see injustices, right? Or see things that we might that rub us the wrong way. I think there is nuance to how we speak about those things. And how one could be perceived uh, when speaking up about certain topics. And it is important. And, and I say this again. I'm saying this, all of you listening, but I'm saying this for myself as well. I have to catch myself sometimes. make sure that i don't come across as someone that's lecturing others but rather trying to understand their perspective and hopefully they understand mine as well i don't want to come across as this person that the way i think is the right way and therefore you should adhere to this i think there there, there's a that could become problematic especially in the space of international schools when you have uh, foreigners slash expats and locals communities interacting with each other you can have very uh divisive um relationships in that kind of way without you even realizing it. So I think we need to be careful in the way we approach the topic, but it needs to be had the conversation needs to be had to begin with. So again, I appreciate Tanisha so much for this for having this conversation. An hour is not enough time for this. And I also hope that from this conversation people realize, not just obviously in Costa Rica, but all over the world, that when discussing marginalized groups, when discussing quote-unquote minorities that were not othering the group it's not oh that history it's a part of history right it's a holistic look and approach to what the history is of the nation um and it shouldn't happen in isolation and i think that's probably the next step and just better the relationships of of all people types of people that we encounter so yeah i mean i could say way more about this but i won't (laughs) <laughs> You've listened to an hour of the podcast, but um, and I just want to say this before we even I, I close off. I've been gone for a while. I'm, I'm aware of that. If those listening, um, it's uh, you know to be quite frank, I go through as any human being does. I go through you know ebbs and flows of of uh, inspiration. And I've tried to have Tanisha on, to be frank, for about three weeks. (laughs) And finally, we we were able to set up the time. So it's not like I've been slacking on the podcast. It's just been difficult. And this master's, it's guys, this is the the last stretch. This is a stretch run of the master's. Um, I'm working on my dissertation, which has to do with diversity. Ha ha. (laughs) Shocking. I know. Um, so that's taken up a lot of my time, a lot of my time on the weekends. And that's pretty much the only time I have to really work on the podcast. And so I will be, I, I know this, I'm not going to lie to you. I'll probably be radio silence or maybe, you know, every couple of weeks as far as episodes are concerned, because this is taking up, I wouldn't say more than I anticipated, but definitely just as much as I anticipated. <laughs> as far as what I need to work out, what I need to get done. Um, so yeah, so I hope to be more consistent, but it will probably be every two weeks or maybe every three weeks that I have an episode on just because of, uh, yeah, priorities, even though I love this podcast and I love you guys, but yeah, enough of that. As always, if you like what you hear, please leave a review on a podcast and subscribe, follow me on Spotify and any of your other favorite streaming platforms. See you soon. <laughs> this is a living color abroad. Peace.